Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. On this episode of Power Hour, we're going to look into the history of climate science uh, with a climate scientist who's been around for a long time and has, has a really interesting historical perspective, and his name is Tim Ball. He's a climate scientist and he's the author of the new book, The Deliberate Corruption of Climate Science, which title kind of speaks for itself. He has an interesting hypothesis in terms of how exactly it is people came to believe that fossil fuels are causing catastrophic uh, climate change. So that's interesting in and of itself. So let's just go right uh, to the interview. It should be good. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're joined now by Dr. Tim Ball, author of The Deliberate Corruption of Climate Science. Dr. Ball, welcome to Power Hour. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Alex. All right. So can you give us some background on how you got into this topic? Well, <laughs> that's a long story. I was in the Canadian Air Force and uh, got in, in, interested in weather uh, there, obviously, from flying. And then I lost my flying category because of a hearing problem and uh, w went back to university, but decided to pursue um, the idea of weather and climate. And um, I used, there was a superb uh, archive called the Hudson Bay Company Archives, which they kept daily weather journals, and they brought thermometers and barometers to um, Hudson Bay, for example, as early as 1768. And um, so... I had uh, known about the work of Hubert Lamb in England, who ironically for, created the Climatic Research Unit that later got into all kinds of trouble, but um, he'd, he'd said all along that we can't possibly know what's going on until we get some decent long-term records and understand what's going on with the weather. Uh, but I was also interested in what was developing at that time, and that is the growing awareness of, of humans as an agent of change. And what struck me, and it is bizarre, but there was a formula for the so formation of soil. And it had, you know, the parent rock material, the, the, the weathering, and, and all the rest of it. But it, it had a simple letter O for organic, which was plants and animals. But they never considered humans in that, and I, I wanted to know why. So I did uh, an honors thesis on that, what, what, how were hum why were not humans considered as an agent of change. Uh, because I knew the landscape, particularly in Europe, has been modified so much by humans. And then I decided that if I was going to investigate this, I needed some science background. So I took a master's looking at um, a pure science study of energy inputs, because, of course, energy is what causes change. And then from that, I did the doctoral thesis where I combined arts and sciences, because I wanted to take the historic record, convert it into numbers, and then use that numbers to create data to indicate climate change. 
So I ended up with a record starting in, in 17, actually starts in 1718, and, and goes right through to 1952 of long-term weather records. And, and but of course, once you look at that, you see how much the climate changes. And um, when I got into it, of course, global cooling was the, the consensus, and uh, CIA writing reports on the dangers of global cooling. And then during my career, I watched climate get hijacked uh, by uh, for a political agenda, um, and because they wanted a, a, a an issue that affected the whole world, and climate became the the culprit, and um, so that's how I ended up writing this book on on uh, how they chose climate uh, climate science to deceive the public to achieve uh, a, a political agenda. Um, really interested in what you said about just going having the, that data back. Uh, um, to 1718, which certainly by today's standards is ex extremely long when people look at 15, 20 years as some somehow decisive. When, when I look back at people commenting on this issue or even the history of people thinking about climate, people tend to think that seem to tend to think that their climate era is is unique um, and, and that any kind of change must be due to them or must be due to some unique unprecedented force. Why is that? Well, of course, uh, one one thing is that uh, human memory is very very short. Um, I mean, uh, as you said, they, we tend to think that what's going on in our time is is unique. Uh, but but the bigger problem is that um, people have been educated in in the Western world, at least, to um, the concept of what's called the uniformitarianism. This is the idea, and, and Darwin got inculcated with this because he read. Uh, uh, Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology uh, when he was in the Galapagos. And um, it's the idea that change is very gradual over long periods of time. The reality is that change, particularly climate, changes very rapidly and quite considerably in relatively short time periods. And so people um, sort of say, well, you know, uh, we're seeing things that seem more different than when I was young, or that's, therefore um, this is not normal. And, and therefore, it must be something that humans are, are, are causing. What's added to that, of course, is the fact that that idea has been deliberately exploited. Uh, what these people have done is, is take normal events and present them as if they were abnormal. And, and by abnormal, they mean that it, it's caused by humans, as if humans are abnormal and their behavior is abnormal, which is another whole philosophical question. But that's the main reason that people, um, they have no idea about the, how, how much climate changes over time uh, and, and how rapidly it changes. And, that, and it, it's the lack of uh, understanding of the public that's really been exploited in this political agenda. So I guess I can think of at least two interpretations of the idea that climate changes more rapidly than, than people think. One is that historically there are periods where, say, global mean temperature anomaly has changed more rapidly than people think. But also it occurs to me that it might just be that that a climate itself is much more of a changing uh, phenomenon, even if, even if you sort of had the same global mean temperature anomaly over a 30-year period, things could be quite different in the global warming system. Is it either of those? Is it both of those? Well, it's actually both of those. I mean, you know, the idea that, that when they first came out with the with the use of, of climate as a political vehicle, it was global warming. And I was charged that, well, you don't believe in global warming. I say, yeah, I believe in global warming, but it depends what time period you're looking at. Okay. The world's warmed up since 1680. It's warmed up since uh, the end of the last ice age. 
what time period are you talking about? What I'm really arguing is, is that the argument that humans are the cause of that warming, that's the issue. And of course, then, then I was called a climate warming skeptic, uh, or a global warming skeptic. But then when you say to people, well, no, look, all scientists are skeptics. That's, if you're not a skeptic, you're not a scientist. But then that changed, because suddenly the basis of their claim of global warming due to humans was, oh, CO2 is going up in the atmosphere because of humans, and the temperature is going up. But then starting in 1998, um, the temperature started to level off and go down. And so they, instead of saying, well, look, our science is wrong, our hypothesis is wrong, they, they suddenly they moved the goalposts. They said, oh, no, well, it's not global warming anymore, it's climate change. And in fact, in those emails leaked from that climatic research unit that Lamb founded, and I know he'd be rolling in his grave over what these people did, but there's actually emails in which they're talking about this. They're saying that, look, the, the media are reporting these cold winters, and, and uh, it's an increasingly hard sell. So they say, oh, well, okay, maybe next idea about calling it climate change, instead of global warming is a good idea. But um, so it, it's, it's a combination of... of how much the climate changes naturally, and then the exploitation of nat those natural events and presenting them as, as if they're unnatural. And, and of course, the public are, are um, uh, not, any, not aware, so they're, they're easily fooled by it. One thing I've thought about a, a lot in studying this issue and communicating it to people is just what are good ways of, of communicating to people what, how, how much of a changing phenomenon climate is is by default? Because it it seems like people's model is something like I'm sitting in a room and, you know, it's comfortable and that's the climate. That's natural climate. And then somebody is just jacking up the thermostat and that's the fossil fuel industry. And it's just going to keep getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And I'm going to get more and more and more uncomfortable. It just, it seems hard to break this idea of climate as, as, as stable, despite the fact that we're, we, you know, even here in Southern California, which is relatively stable, things are fluctuating so much within the climate. And then uh, over time, so I'm curious about how you think people should view it in their heads as against the false models they're, they're taught. Well, I, I think that that's the real challenge is to get people to understand how much the climate changes and, and in short time. I mean, you could start, for example, with just going back 20,000 years, which in the history of the earth, 5 billion years, is, is like 0.0004% or something. So just 20,000 years ago, over half of North America was covered with an ice sheet that was larger in area than the current Antarctic ice sheet. And most of that ice melted in, in about 6,000 years. So just in that short time period, you, you can do it. But I mean, even, even in my lifetime, and I was born before the Second World War, I, I've seen, uh, here's the climate changes I've seen, or temperature changes. Uh, the first part of my life, the, the temperatures were, were going up. From 1900 to 1940, temperatures rose. From 1940 to 1980, temperatures went down. And, and that, by the way, has been a huge problem for these people claiming CO2 were causing it. But anyway, from 1980 to 1998, global temperatures went up. And from now, from 1998 to the present, they've gone down. So that's four changes just in my short lifetime. And, and so uh, once you start to educate people to this and they start to ask questions about it, 
And, and of course, that's why uh, I'm such a threat to these people, because not only was I qualified to talk about climate, but I was able to explain things in the way that the public could understand. That made me a huge threat. And, of course, it's ended up in massive lawsuits and all sorts of attacks on Wikipedia and, and, and everywhere else. Um, and, and, and so we've just got to start getting people educated to the idea that, that the current climate is not only very normal, but it's well within natural variability of climate. There's nothing unusual about the climate today at all. Uh, but, as I said, they, they're able to pick up on... So, for example, that they're, they're forced to tell lies. I mean, they're talking about tornadoes, for example. There's been no increase in tornadoes. In fact, the worst tornado in, in that year in loss of life was in 1905. And there weren't many people living in Tornado Alley in that, in that particular year. So it's just a matter of educating people to how they've been fooled and, and, and doing that by showing how much the climate changes o o over short periods of time. And if, if you go, if you, as I said, you go back to the 70s, global cooling, um, the CIA doing studies on the impact of that on world food production and so on, and then you go back to the 30s with the heat and, and, and the drought. And, uh, it, it's very relatively simple to get people to understand the variability of climate. Um, what was the 6,000-year period, and what, what was the main, what's understood as the main driver of it? Well, the main driver of climate in, in, overall, regardless of time period, is the sun. Um, and, uh, which they virtually ignore in their IPCC reports, that is their so-called official reports, because what they did with those reports is they, um, they define climate change as only those ca caused by humans. Well, unless you know how much the climate changes naturally, you can't possibly identify that portion um, that, that is human. But the, the 6,000-year the period when most of the warming from the last ice age occurred, and it's known as the Holocene, that, which means most recent, Holocene optimum. And we're talking about for most of the last 10,000 years, the world has been much warmer than it is today. And, um, you know, I've, I've got photographs of, of fossilized trees, radiocarbon dated at 5,000 years old, that are 100 kilometers north of the current tree line. And, and, of course, that, that warming period caused by, as I said, increased energy from the sun uh, is what caused that ice to melt so rapidly. It, it certainly wasn't Barney Rubble driving a car. And CO2 doesn't correlate to any of these temperature changes, by the way. And, in fact, one of the things that the, the public need to know is that in every single record we've got of any duration, uh, their fundamental assumption is that if CO2 increases, the temperature will go up. But in every record we've got, exactly the opposite happens. The temperature goes up before the CO2 does. So what do you think is the best argument or the most compelling argument on the other side for uh, claiming that, that history demonstrates that CO2 is a, is a major driver of climate? Well, the, the only uh, model, model is the right word, they've, they've created, they built their computer models around the idea, they built into it, that if CO2 increases, the temperature will go up in their model. But that's the only place in the world where that's happening. 
And, and so they keep presenting their computer models saying, oh, well, you know, this is the future. This is our prediction. And in fact, their predictions were so wrong, they started calling them projections. But if you want to offset that, all you do is look at the fact that since 1990, when they started making these predictions, they've been, uh, they've been wrong every single time. Every single prediction has been wrong. And the, the basic uh, thing is that if your prediction is wrong, your science is wrong, period. But they, as I said earlier, they didn't, they didn't go back and look at the science. They simply moved the goalposts. And, and they've moved them again recently. The White House, uh, uh, John Holdren, who's been very involved in this since the 1970s, uh, started calling it climate disruption. Uh, in order to move the goalposts again, because people are starting to realize, hey, climate change is normal. And, and so now they're calling it climate disruption, which suggests that this is, uh, this is something abnormal again. But, but that's the political game. Now, when, when you start to look at what, they, what they're doing and understand it at all, uh, it, it's, um, it just doesn't help bear any investigation whatsoever. But the computer models, of course, they seem to hold a great mystique for people. Oh, it's the uh, computer's doing this. Oh, it must be, must be right. But, uh, you know, the, the old thing with computer models uh, used to be garbage in, garbage out. Well, what these people have done is converted that into gospel in, gospel out, because they write the computer to get the result that they want and then say that the computer's accurate and giving, giving correct information. Yeah, it's um, what was I going to ask? Well, so one 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 area in which these kinds of uh, dynamics converge is is with any given event that can be that seems to be dramatic that goes on in the you know in the atmosphere or in just in the world. Um, you know, it can always be blamed on on CO two. The most recent probably is the Antarctica thing. Could you comment on that? Well, of course, one of one of the things. When you say to people, what's wrong with global warming? This sounds like an oblique way of coming at your question, but when, when you say to people, what's wrong with global warming? Most people have to stop and think. And I can tell you, I wrote an article saying, look, here are the, here are the positive effects of warming. And I got more hate mail than, for that article than anything I've ever written. But you see, what they do in their IPCC studies is they only look at the negative impacts and that, of course, is, is what's played up. Oh, this, this is going to happen. This negative thing is going to that, that negative thing is going to happen, and and um, so it, it this is this is the difficulty that 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 people have got to realize that there are positive effects, but of course they 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 had to focus on CO2 um, because that that CO2 was the gas that allowed them to blame humans. And that's the key to this thing, that, that humans are, are, are to blame for everything. And one of the things that people don't realize is that, and, and it's in, unfortunate because the environmental movement was a new paradigm and we needed to have environmentalism, but it's being exploited for a political agenda. And, and um, Maurice Strong, who was the founder, or who was a member of the Club of Rome, which is where all these ideas generated, and, and John Holdren and Paul Ehrlich and all these people. Um, Maurice Strong said in an interview with Elaine Dewar, he said, the problem for the planet are the industrialized nations, and isn't it our responsibility to get rid of them? Well, how do you do that? How would you, how would you shut down an industrialized nation? And the answer is you, you, you could got to either block off the energy supply, 
And if you think about it like a car, you squeeze the fuel line, the car engine will stop. But you can also, and pub, but the public would scream about that, by the way, that would be very politically difficult to do. But if you could show that the byproduct of that engine, the fossil fuel exhaust, uh, was causing runaway global warming and runaway climate change, then, then you could effectively control CO2 and, and use it to say, well, this is the cause of all of our problem, and therefore we've got to stop burning fossil fuels. And that's precisely what they've done. And, of course, they then set up, as I mentioned earlier, the, um, the definition that they use for climate change is human causes of climate change. Well, the, on, the only thing that, that humans produce that is, is, could possibly have any significant effect, as they present it, is CO2. But, but just to illustrate the point, CO2, they claim, is a greenhouse gas. That is, that it, it supposedly blocks heat from escaping, and therefore the more CO2, the more heat will be trapped and the higher the temperature will go. But the reality is that it's only 4% of the greenhouse gases. Not, water vapor is 95% of the greenhouse gases. But it, it's such a huge uh, uh, volume that they say the human contribution of water vapor to the atmosphere is inconsequential, and therefore they effectively ignore it. And, and so this, this is, this is uh, all part of that political agenda to find um, something that humans are doing. Um, because if you go back to the, what, what caused the basis of the Club of Rome, was um, it, it came on from Malthus, Robert Malthus, the 19th century um, British uh, person who wrote a book on and essays on, on population. And by the way, Darwin took Malthus's book with him on the Beagle as he took the Lyell's geology book, and he was a huge fan of Malthus. And um, Malthus argued that the population would outgrow the food supply. Well, of course, that's been proved completely wrong. And, but Paul Ehrlich, at, at, again at Stanford and that whole Stanford gang, wrote a book called The Population Bomb, made all kinds of predictions. But that, that was the basis of the Club of Rome. And what they, the Club of Rome took Malthus one step further. They said the population would, would, would outgrow all of the resources um, because it was using up not just food supply, but all resources. And um, so they, they pr produced a book called Limits to Growth, and that's where the phrases like peak oil came in and all the rest of it. Well, uh, that, that, that became the underlying theme of the United Nations um, uh, Agenda 21, which uh, Maurice Strong took from the Club of Rome and encapsulated in the United Nations Environment Program. And, um, and, of course, that's what's dictating to the world about what is the world climate, the IPCC. And the IPCC was set up by Strong uh, in order to provide the science to support the political agenda that there are too many people on the planet and they're using up the resources at too much, a too fast a rate. And the biggest culprits of that were the industrialized nations. And therefore, they were there the ones that had to be got rid of, as, as Strong uh, talked about. So that's really the underlying theme of all of this. Uh, it seems <laughs> just remarkable. Uh, it would be a heck of a coincidence if they were right, because it, every single thing that man does uh, somehow is is destructive. So they have, if he... He's either going to run out of fossil fuels, which will be a catastrophe, or he won't run out of fossil fuels, which will be a catastrophe. 
because of CO2 emissions. And if he cools the earth, it's a catastrophe. And if he warms the earth, it's a catastrophe. Um, it's really remarkably consistent. And you mentioned that the IPCC doesn't cover positives. You would think that given what a global climate system is and, and what kind of variability exists within it in different areas, that you would, even if it was a net negative, you know, 40% would be positive, 60% would be negative. But it's, it's remarkable how only bad things, even in specific uh, local weather incidents, it's all it's all bad. Everything human is bad. Yeah, and and, and it's it's the uh, the same idea that you can argue that insurance actually promotes bad practices, because if something's happening and and it's going on quite frequently, you need to have sure insurance to cover it. Then maybe you should be lo looking at what you're doing, rather than just buying insurance to cover up uh, you know the stupid stupidity. But but yeah, the, what what they've done here is they've done cost benefit analysis as any logical economist would do, but only done the cost side. They haven't done the benefit side of it. But there's another underlying principle here, Alex, that it underlines the whole environmental movement, and you've in, inferred it in your question, and that's called the precautionary principle, which is really what you're defining. Now, the precautionary principle is the argument that, well, shouldn't we act anyway, just in case? But the difficulty with that argument, and by the way, that is enshrined in Agenda 21 as Principle 15. Principle 15 says only the wealthy nations have to do this, and, and um, it, it's, um, you, you don't need scientific certainty to act. So that's precautionary principle. But as I explained when I appeared before the Canadian Parliamentary Committee on the ozone issue, which, by the way, was another phony issue. There never was a hole in the ozone. But what I realized was that the, the parliamentarians didn't realize how science works any more than the public realizes how science works. Science works by creating hypotheses. Hypothesis is a fancy scientific word for speculation. And they say, well, look, uh, this could happen if, if, if this is true. And the if, if, if are the assumptions that you make to support your speculation. So you don't attack the original idea. So I'll give you an example. It's like Einstein's theory of relativity. The formula E equals MC squared is only as valid as the assumptions on which it is based. One of those assumptions is that nothing can go faster than the speed of light. That's the C in the formula. But many physicists are trying and arguing that they are, they're finding things going faster than the speed of light. So if that's proven to be true, then what, the formula E equals MC squared, it, it, it really becomes mathematically redundant. Well, the same, the same is true of, of um, you know, hypotheses or speculation. But what happens with environment, what's happened with environmentalism is that, that scientists and people are creating these hypotheses, and then they're presented as a threat and the, and the, the demand that the government do something about it. And so what I did at the, at the parliamentary committee was I, I abandoned my presentation, and I said, look, I'm going I'm to take some scientific facts and present you with a potential threat to the Earth. And the scientific facts are that the Earth is speeding down in its speed of rotation, that the Earth's magnetic field has been weakening for a thousand years, and that if it continues to weaken at the current rate, there'll be no magnetic field in 120 years from now, and that we know 
In the past, when the magnetic field has disappeared, there's been massive extinction of species from harmful radiation on the Earth. And I want to know what my government's going to do about this. Well, and as I said to them, I can create that kind of impending doom threat forever. You know, not forever, but, you know, dozens of them. Well, which ones are you going to deal with? And then, of course, that's why the precautionary principle says, well, you don't, you don't look for scientific certainty. Well, how much scientific certainty do you need? And, and, uh, and of course, when, when you can show, as it's easy to show, with the claim that increased CO2 will cause temperature increase and, and destroy the planet, and you can show that the evidence doesn't support that at all, um, then why are we spending billions and killing millions of people uh, with these policies? But that precautionary principle is a standard fallback position of the environmentalists. Well, shouldn't we act anyway? Shouldn't we act just in case? And the answer is no, we shouldn't. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this just has this, this anti-human bias, part of which is a bias against the human mind and technology. Because if you just think about you know, how we spend a day, is the precautionary principle to sit down in a chair and not go do anything? Well, obviously not, because we know the biggest risk is inaction, because we live through action. So the idea that, hey, we producing that there's there's only risk to producing energy and no risk to not producing energy is is the least cautious thing one could do. It's a suicidal policy, but they have a bias against human action. So all they can, as you mentioned, they only look at at cost, and the thing that drives them to only look at cost makes them always exaggerate cost. Yeah, but, but here's, here's the, not the problem with what you said there, but within what you said is, is, is a problem. Because you said that, you know, that you've got to act, but you don't. If you're, not, if you're not sure, most of the time you're better not to do anything. That, and, and what I mean by that, let me give you an example of, of how this is going on right now. Every, everybody's hearing about geoengineering. Oh, well, we've got to do something to stop global warming. Well, what are you going to do? And think about that, because I remember back in the 70s, oh, global cooling, oh, we've got to do something to stop the global cooling. And there were all kinds of ideas. They, they were, oh, well, we've got to build a dam across the Bering Straits and block the cold water coming out of the Arctic into the Pacific, blah, 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 blah. Oh, and we've got to put massive reflector mirrors up in space and direct heat down to northern cities to give them more energy, and on and on and on. But what would have happened at that time, and I mean, if, let's assume that CO2 did cause warming. It doesn't, but let's assume. And, and, and they, they said, well, we've got, to, we've got to put more CO2 into the atmosphere to offset this cooling. So if you don't know what's going on, you're far better to do nothing because now the geoengineering is to, oh, well, we've got to stop this, this uh, warming. And they, 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 they actually have done experiments. They drop iron filings all across the North Pacific, which had a considerable impact on the chemistry of the surface waters. They didn't consider that. What, what they were doing it for was they said, well, if, if we can increase the, the iron content of the surface, it will absorb more CO2 and reduce the CO2 in the atmosphere. So if you start playing God, which of course is what these people are essentially doing, and you don't know what you're doing, you're, you're going to create, you're likely to create, more probably going to create bigger problems. And, and um, so what you do is what has always gone on in the past 
is that as, for example, when they were using charcoal in Europe and in the forest of Dean in the west of England, they were using charcoal, burning oak trees. Well, then our oak trees started to, uh, as a resource, started to disappear for a couple of reasons. One was it was getting colder. They were building more houses and bigger houses. And then, and then uh, they were building wooden ships out of the oak. In fact, there was an admiral that put up money to plant oak trees so the British Navy could survive. But they started to run out of the wood, and then just by chance, in the forest of Dean, where they were burning this, producing most of the charcoal to produce uh, smelt iron in England, there was coal seams right at the surface, and they started using the coal. But that was the start of the whole science, or industrial revolution. But what, what happens is that as one resource starts to get too expensive, then we start to look for a reasonable alternative. The, the, the key thing is to consider the costs and the benefits of every single move that you make. But what's happened with the global warming issue uh, is that a speculation or hypothesis was created. It wasn't tested in the proper scientific method. Because in the scientific methods, a scientist uh, creates hypothesis, immediately other scientists start to challenge it in their role as skeptics. If the if these, uh, hypothesis holds up, it then becomes a law. And, and of course, it's then it's, its predictions are accurate, and you move forward. But what they did with the global warming issue, as Richard Lindzen at MIT said years ago, the consensus was reached before the research had even begun. And they started for forcing and pushing policies on it. And, and by the way, if you want to see the effects of the policies that Maurice Strong uh, proposes for the world, in the year that he chaired the United Nations Environment Program in Rio in 1992, he was also appointed chairman of Ontario Hydro, which is that province, is that Canadian province's public utility. They control all energy production in that province. He shut down the nuclear plants, he shut down the coal plants, he put up wind turbines. Ontarians have been paying a surcharge and will pay for 40 more years to offset the damage that he did to their economy and their energy production. And that's in a country, Canada, which has more energy than, than the Middle East. Uh, it's just unbelievable what he did. So we know it doesn't work. And, and uh, so, you know, th these are the sorts of things that people need to learn about and look at what's, what's going on. But the main thing was, as I said, they, they thwarted the scientific method, the proper method, and therefore thwarted the natural replacement. Now, by the way, uh, the, the, the argument about peak oil, that was, I mentioned that earlier. Well, that was phony, totally phony. In fact, um, when, when Paul Ehrlich and these people came out with these, the limits to growth, uh, Julian Simon, an economist, looked at it and said, you can't do things that way. Julian Simon uh, made a bet with Paul Ehrlich, and there's a book on it called The Bet. And Simon said, look, pick any minerals you want uh, over any time period, and I'll bet you at the end of the time period there'll be more of those minerals available at a lower price. Well, guess who picked the minerals and the time period? It was John Holdren, who's currently Obama's science czar. Well, Simon won his bet, and eventually, just by public shame, Paul Ehrlich had to pay up on that bet. And, and uh, so if you, if you allow the, the natural processes of humanity uh, to go forward uh, in, the, in their unfettered way, then, then it can work. But uh, people don't want to do that. And then you add, add into that uh, the thing we talked earlier about, the anti-humanity. 
I mean, there there are people who say that the, the, the planet will be much better off without any people. Uh, you know, Prince Philip, unbelievable, that buffoon. What did he say? They said, oh, well, Prince Philip, if you could be reincarnated, uh, what would you come back as? He said, I'd come back as a deadly virus and kill off most of the people. Well, I got a suggestion for the prince. Uh, let's start with the monarchy. You know, but this this is the kind of of, of uh, irrational nonsense that's that comes out when you start doing things for political agendas, not on the basis of good solid uh, science and common sense. I go back to a point that you made earlier that I I find particularly helpful, just about the the actual nature of climate as, as something that 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 can dramatically change. Uh, versus the the conventional view of I think what you called uniformitarianism. Oh, yeah. and I just forgot my okay, so we were going from okay, so we had the six thousand years. Uh yeah. we had anarchy oh yeah, it was this. Um you mentioned about the issue of warming and that people assume warming is is bad. Um what is the evidence for that? Because I've seen a lot of people who, let's say in the early 20th century, even before, were hoping for warming and were hoping for even the poles to warm. And now now it seems that every time any ice might disappear from the earth, it's a catastrophe, even though none of us want to go live in Antarctica. Well, exactly. And, and, and But this, this is, you see, the way they set up the IPCC, this Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and, and Marty Strong, he's a genius, but he's an evil genius. These people, I mean, they, they don't do things without premeditating them. So when he set up the IPCC, he set up Working Group 1, which looked at the physical basis of human-caused climate change. So don't tell me about the sun and, and the Milankovitch effect and all this other stuff. Leave that out of there. And, and they then come out and say, we're 95-plus percent certain that human CO2 is causing warming. And, and, and I mean, there's no evidence for that in, 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 the, in their actual report. But that, but that, that conclusion that humans, they're pretty certain that humans are causing warming. And by the way, the first person to make these kinds of comments publicly was James Hansen, who later went on to be head of NASA GIS. Hansen was picked out by Al Gore and Senator Worth because he was prepared to sit in front of their committee and say, I'm 99% certain that warming is due to human activity. And he said that in 1988. Well, how, just to give you an idea how manipulative these people are, the day, they chose the day for Hansen's appearance, that is, the, the hearing of the committee, by picking out from the historic record what was the warmest day on average in Washington, D.C. That's the day they chose the hearing. They went in the night before, shut off the air conditioning, and opened all the windows. So here's this hearing held in a, a sweating hot room in Washington in, in the middle of June. And, and so that was where the, the, the deception began. But, but to go back to the IPCC, so the IPCC produced this report that says scientifically, we're 95% plus certain that, that human CO2 is causing warming. Okay, working group two then take that as a given. And they then look at, it's called the impact report. What impact is this going to have? Well, of course, it's all negative. And it's that impact report number two where they, they produce, oh, well, you know, these, these creatures are going to die and the sea, oh, this Wait, are they, are they allowed to come up with positive impact? I mean, could they theoretically say, well, this is, this is good news and humanity will be better off and we'll have, you know, nice No, it's, it's, that, that's, that's not allowed. That's downplayed. 
That's completely downplayed. It's all negative, negative, negative. And, and by the way, that's why one of the Richard Toll, T-O-L, he recently resigned from the IPCC because he said it's, it's just too alarmist. It's just not alarmism is not justified. Uh, but then they take the, 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 then working group three, they say, oh, here's the policies that you've got to adopt and create to deal with the, these impacts that are coming at you. Okay. But they don't stop there because in the working group one, the science report, they lay out all the limitations. Oh, we've got no data here. We got no, we don't know this mechanism. We don't know that. We don't know the other, but they know nobody's ever going to read that. Because they produce, after all of the, the, those three reports are done, they produce a fourth report called the Summary for Policymakers. And this is all deliberately set out. The Summary for Policymakers is a completely different group of people. It's politicians and bureaucrats, but only one or two selected scientists who then draft the Summary for Policymaker, and they hold a world press conference at which they announce, oh, here's what's going to happen. Here's the impending disaster. It's far worse than we thought. In other words, it's like what they're doing is it's like, uh, and by the way, that, su that, that summary then goes back to the science people and say, look, make sure that uh, you, know, you don't contradict us in any way. Well, this is like an executive of a corporation writing a report on his company and then going to the employees and saying, look, find the evidence to support my summary. That's exactly what they're doing. But it was set up deliberately to do that. And uh, I can give you all kinds of quotes. But, but this is the thing about Maury Strong. He knew how to play bureaucracies, and, and, and that's the difficulty. Um, by the way, I, I should mention about the Antarctic ice. We didn't, we didn't get into that specifically. But you see, when, when, uh, when, when, they, when you say to people, what's wrong with warming, they, they think for quite a while, nobody can tell you. And and because they can't think of positive things, and then they'll say, "Oh well, you know what's wrong with warming is the ice is going to melt, the sea level is going to rise," which is why, by the way, Al Gore made that a major part of his movie *Inconvenient Truth*. You know, with all those animated, "Oh, here's the ice melting, here's the sea level rising, here's New York going underwater, and on and on and on," because he knew that would play to people's fears. Okay, and and um, but the reality is that um, all of the, the sea level has risen in that 6,000-year warming period that I mentioned from about uh, 16,000 years ago to 8,000 years ago. Um, the, the sea level rose about 450 feet. And in the last 6,000 years, it's leveled off. It's still a, a slight increase over the last five or 6,000 years, but it's essentially stable. But what people don't realize, and, and Gore does this, they all do this. They show, oh, here's the, here's the Arctic ice melting. Oh, here's the Antarctic melting. There's three different kinds of ice. And by the way, the amount of ice that you have on the land, in, in the Greenland and, and Antarctica and so on, is a function of snowfall. It's much more how much snow that they're getting because that's what the ice what creates the ice than it is at, uh, what the temperature is because the average temperature for Antarctica is minus 20 Celsius. I mean, how much warming of the Earth's got to occur before that starts to have an impact? But there, you've got the ice on the land, which is the ice caps of Greenland and Antarctica primarily, the Ellesmere and Baffin Island in Canada and so on. But then you've got the, as that ice flows off of the land into the ocean, it forms what are called ice shelves. 
Um, and like the Rossi shove is one of the largest ones of these. These are flat, about 200 meters thick, uh, tabular ice. They break off uh, every once in a while and float out into the, um, into the Atlantic Ocean and Pacific Ocean, and then they gradually melt. And, um, and then every single year, you get sea ice forming as the, as the temperature drops. And that sea ice, for example, in the, uh, in the Arctic, uh, you have about 15 million square kilometers of ice forms every single winter. And every single summer, about 10 million square kilometers of that ice melts. Now, that's an area about the size of the continental U.S. And, and uh, so you've got this massive uh, growth of ice and retreat of ice every single year. But the public don't know that. So it's very easy to, to exploit it. And I remember one year they said, well, more ice melted this year uh, than last year by amount the size of Texas. Well, why did they use Texas? Well, Texas is big. Well, that's got to scare people. But the reality is that it, it, well, that was less than 4% of the total amount that melted. Uh, but but uh, the public, again, don't know that. And uh, so... Uh, when you start to look, none of it bears any investigation. It's very easy to explain to people what's going on, um, but uh, most 80% of the population are not, sci are not scientifically inclined, and um, the other 20% of scientists uh, are not that interested. Not, and that, that's the, they know that. So, so they play on fears. They play on lack of, of knowledge and information, and, and um, that, that's how, it, how it's achieved. Um, so what, what of those different types of ice and those different types of phenomena, where did the recent, uh, where does the recent one fall in? Well, the, the recent one is, is, is just, again, it's pure speculation and it's one that's been around. You see the Antarctic ice sheet is actually in, in, in two uh, major areas. There's the West Antarctic and East Antarctic. Um, they're grounded on uh, land, of course, beneath the, beneath the oceans and uh, it's always been argued that the West Antarctic uh, sheet is smaller and, and more unstable. And, and what they're arguing is that, um, that um, because of the warming, um, it, it will become unstable and it will all fall off into the ocean and melt, and that will raise sea level by whatever it is, two meters or so. It's, it's utter nonsense. It, it's absolute nonsense, and it's just part of the alarmism. And as I said, they've been using this, this one for quite some time. But here's the other reality. If you take the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets, which are still the two largest ones, a majority of the ice is underwater. It's already in the ocean. Right? And, and I, one of the things I'd, I'd say to people, okay, look, let's fill a, and this is a grade 8 exercise, fill a glass with water with an ice cube in it. And then ask people, well, what will happen when the ice cube melts? Because the water's already at the top of the glass. What will happen when the ice cube melts? Well, most people uh, say the water will spill out over the edge. Right. Right? And that's wrong. In fact, what happens is the water level goes down. Why? Because when, uh, when water freezes, it expands. So the ice cube is occupying 7% more space in the water than it would uh, when it was melted. Well, that also applies to these um, Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets. The other thing is that if you're standing on a shoreline and the sea level is changing, it could be because the sea level is changing or because the land level is changing. 
And the difference between these two is that sea level change is called eustasy, that's spelled E-U-S-T-A-S-Y, and land level change is called isostasy, I-S-O-S-T-A-S-Y. And along the Gulf of Mexico, for example, they all oh, the sea's coming in, it's a sea level rise. No, it isn't. The land is sinking. Why? Because when there was a massive ice sheet on the northern part of North America, the whole continent was pushed down in the north, and, and the, the, the southern part was higher. Now the ice is melted, and the, the continent's readjusting. Hudson Bay is shrinking. And as you, as you fly into Hudson Bay, as I've done on dozens of occasions, you cross literally 40 or 50 beach lines marking the retreat of, the, of Hudson Bay as the land rises up. It's got nothing to do uh, with sea level rise. And, and so, again, these are all sorts of things that the public have no knowledge about. And most scientists have no knowledge about. But once you start to explain it to people, oh, yeah, okay, now that makes sense. And that's, of course, I say, that's, that's what we've got to do, is just keep educating people and answering the questions as, as you're giving me the opportunity to do here. Um, so one, one thing I'd definitely recommend about the book is just, there, just there's um, so much documentation of the conduct of various people um, you know, distorting the science. One particular one that, that stood out to me that I'd like to ask you as we wrap up is, is the LAM uh, incident and and the whole uh, denial of the medieval warm period. Yeah, well, one of the th one of the things was that um, you know when you make definitive statements, you run the risk of somebody proving it wrong. Um, and one of the things that that I kept right in the front of my tiny little brain is that if somebody can show me what what I'm saying is wrong, I've got to be the first to admit that and be out there saying so. But, but when you, when you predetermine a scientific outcome, you either adopt that approach or you then are on a treadmill of defending the increasingly indefensible. And one of the things they said at the beginning was that it's warmer now than it's ever been. And I love that when they, when it comes on the radio and they <laughs> say, oh, it's warm, it's the warmest day ever. And I phone in and say, you really mean ever? The world's five billion years old, you know? Um, and, and so by saying it was warmer than it's ever been, they trap themselves uh, because in the first IPCC report in 1990, there was a graph drawn by Hubert Lamb in which he attempted to reconstruct the temperature of northern Europe for the last thousand years. And it showed the a medieval warm period centered around 1100 AD, which was significantly warmer than the current temperatures. And um, so, uh, and by the way, Vikings were sailing in, in Arctic waters that are now permanent pack ice. And I've, I've done a lot of work on that. And I worked with Ann, Alan Ann Ogilvy, who, who read all of the Viking sagas and reconstructed uh, Iceland climate for thousands of years. But anyway, um, so this, this graph, um, and it's graph 7C in that first report, was, was a problem for them. Now, David Deming, in testimony to the U.S. Congress, said he published an article in Science which appeared to, uh, you know, or gave comfort to these alarmists, these people that were pushing human CO2 causing warming. And he said, I got an email from a person who was very instrumental, and as he phrases it, using climate science for a social and political agenda. And uh, in the email, the person 
and it later turned out to be Jonathan Overpeck, although he's denied it. Uh, in that email, he said, we've got to get rid of the medieval warm period. And so instead of um, saying, look, uh, it existed, um, and therefore we've got to get our computer models to accommodate it, they decided to rewrite history. Um, there was also, now besides that article, there was also a very, very good um, summary of all of the evidence for the medieval warm period from historical documents and everything else. This was put together by Willie Soon and Sally Balionis at the Lamont Doherty Observatory. Observatory. And um, a, a superb piece of work and proved conclusively that the medieval warm period existed. Well, they started an attack. Um, and Sally Balionis, the attack became so bad that she quit climate change altogether. She, and, and the attacks were orchestrated and revealed, by the way, in the leaked emails. And John Holdren was at the center of that when he was at Harvard. And Willie Soon, I mean, it was unbelievable the attacks they made on him. But anyway, they then, of course, had to produce evidence that the medieval warm period didn't exist. And it fell to Michael Mann, uh, who then produced um, a graph using tree ring data, but only selected tree ring data, and, 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 and assuming that tree ring data showed temperature change, when it doesn't, it shows precipitation change. He, um, he produced a graph that became known as the hockey stick, which showed that there was virtually no temperature change for a very long period of time, in other words, eliminating the medieval warm period, and then suddenly in the 20th century, turned up dramatically, dramatic heating, and that was the blade of the hockey stick. Well, of course, that, that was um, exposed uh, for the false science that, that it was. Michael Mann, of course, is still refusing to disclose all of his data and how he achieved it, although we've got a pretty good idea. And, and um, that hockey stick graph became the poster child for the proof that the 20th century was the warmest on record and the medieval warm period never existed. And um, it, as I said, it, it was incredible uh, how they did that and, and, and um, what they did to achieve it. Um, and then it, in order to, here was their problem within that. Using the tree ring data, it showed the temperature declining. From, from about 900, going down and down and down. And then when they got into the 20th century, the tree ring data suggested it was still going down. So they then chopped that off and, and added onto it an instrumental temperature record produced by Phil Jones at the CRU that showed the temperature going up in the 20th century. They, they pasted that on to this tree ring data, which is scientifically in, inappropriate. Okay, and and um, that then became the the blade of the hockey stick, and in the leaked emails from CRU, and in particularly in the computer code, there is a computer code that tells the computer hide the decline, and what they mean by that is look, stop using that temperature from the tree rings at a certain point, and tack on this modern instrumental record to create the blade of the hockey stick. And um, it became known as Mike's nature trick, because that was how it was referred to by themselves, that they used Mike's na nature trick to show the 20th century was dramatically warmer and, and uh, abnormally warm. And by the way, the data for that blade of the hockey stick 
uh, came from Phil Jones, as I mentioned, who was the director of the CRU, and they tried through freedom of information to get the information from it, and in the emails they're talking about how they'll ignore them and how they'll end run freedom of information requests and so on. And then, finally, push, 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 and oh my goodness, Phil Jones has lost the data. How convenient. And, uh, of course, they waltz off into the sunset with their academic pensions and, and so on. So that, that's just one example of the kind of, of corruption that went on. And, of course, people find it hard to believe this, uh, that scientists would do this sort of thing. But, but that's precisely what was going on. And I think two things drove it. One was a they, they, were, they had an affinity for the political ideology that was being pushed. But also the funding, of course, was a major, major factor. Yeah, and I, I also noticed that just in terms of seeing motivation in general in different fields, I mean, I was more raised in the humanities, but just the, the phenomenon of prestige and clinging on to an idea that one is attached to. I and mean, imagine Holdren after all these years. I mean, imagine what it would take psychologically for him to confront the evidence. I think that's a lot more, the psychological difficulty would be a lot more than whatever money loss he would get, and then the, the prestige is connected to that. You know, the the power and and it, it would. It, I think it's just th those are also powerful forces. Oh, exactly. I mean, self esteem, ego, particularly amongst the males, um, and and then uh, you know you're you're a big world name, and suddenly you're you're uh, you know right at the bottom. But at, I've, in the book, I've got a quote. I can't give it to you off the top of my head, but Tolstoy wrote about this a hundred years ago. When he said, you know, when you when you created a career where you've pushed an idea and you you proudly taught it to your friends and your neighbors and your colleagues, um, you know, to to uh, admit that that it was wrong, yeah, it it takes a lot of courage, but but that's uh, un that's unfortunately what uh, needs to happen. Uh, but what we're into now is a society where you only broke the law if you got caught, you only lied if you got caught. And it, it, that's a fundamentally different perception. But, but then we do that, you know, this double thinking goes on all the time. And I chaired commissions, and in one commission I got them all together beforehand, bought them coffee and donuts. And, of course, they're all standing around talking about, oh, well, you know, there's, there's too much government and, and government costs, and you know. And, and, um, and then we sit down, and um, the first thing, issue I raised was remuneration for being on the commission. But of course, they, they all immediately got their hands out, <laughs> and 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 um, and so this is the other side of it. The the one minute we're saying there's too much government, uh, we we need less government, but the next minute we're saying why doesn't the government do something about this? And they never even think about the contradictions in the in those philosophies. And um, so this is a very this to me is a very interesting aspect of all of this, Alex, because we do it, for example, with the economy. We go from oh well, look, I'll buy, I'll, I'll wait till the price goes down to oh, I'll buy it before the price goes up, right? And that's the transition from a, a growing economy into a recessional economy. And we don't even realize that we're we're changing the phraseology that we're using because it reflects what's actually happening. And, and to me, that's a fascinating part about, about humans. And, and, and it relates to all of this story about, about the climate change issue. 
Um, well, again, as I mentioned uh, in the book, Deliberate uh, Corruption of Climate Science, there are lots and lots of stories. Definitely recommend uh, reading those. We need uh, to wrap up. So, Dr. Wall, thanks for being on the show and hang out, uh, hang on for a minute afterward uh, so we can talk a little bit then. But, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, Alex. Thanks again to Dr. Ball for coming on the show. Um, I got pretty much all my questions answered uh, during the show, and I had a lot of them. So hopefully those uh, were valuable. I don't have any closing comments, except that I should say that in, in the book, there's an issue that I regard as, as peripheral to the discussion we were having today, but it's, it's important in the sense of uh, this is a place where I uh, disagree uh, with Dr. Ball to a certain extent, um, I'll explain the extent to which in a second, and then also other certain thinkers like Robert Zubrin. Um, and this has to do with the view of Darwin and what's often called Darwinism, and whether there's any analogy between, um, you know, teaching Dar Darwinism as an establishment view and catastrophic climate change as an establishment view. Now. I'm not any kind of expert in the theory of evolution by natural selection, uh, so I don't. I, when you talk about Darwinism, it sounds like a big package deal of all kinds of different things, and some of those may well be illegitimate. But at the same time, um, if there's any hint of, you know, we should be teaching intelligent design, so to speak, uh, you know, any kind of um, creationist view with evolution, um, I don't regard those as on the same par at all, and I think it's, I think it's damaging um, if we, you know, if, if, we in, if we in any way say that you know, we should teach both sides of the climate change issue in the same way should, we should teach, quote, both sides of the evolution issue. There may well be many um, valuable different views of evolution. Um, but they have to be scientific views based on cause and effect. It can't be that, you know, within a scientific debate, you can't say, well, here's a supernatural uh, cause. Now, that's a whole discussion of exactly why, but I just want to be clear because in some of these books, I, it, this issue comes up and it makes me uncomfortable. So um, I just want to say that I think it's extremely important to um, not analogize those two. And, and certainly the left is trying to do that in the sense of the saying, oh, yeah, you're a climate denier and you're an evolution denier. Now, evolution denier I don't think is really a coherent way of putting things, but it's, um, yeah, I think there are many of us who believe in, the, at least the fundamentals of theory of evolution are demonstrated scientifically, and catastrophic climate change is completely undemonstrated, and uh, we have all the evidence to the contrary. So, um, that's more, I don't want to go into the specific passages from specific books, so I'll just say my general view, and then if you, I just did say my general view, so um, if you see stuff like that come up, that's, that's what I think of that. Um, anyway, again, thanks to Dr. Ball for um, all the illuminating answers to the questions. I learned a lot, and we'll wrap up with that. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Uh, we have been off the air for a little while, so to speak. Um, this mainly because I've been working on the book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which you can find uh, online at Amazon and pre-order. It's coming out in November 
uh, 13th. Uh, we also, in the meantime, you'll probably see on the Power Hour feed if you're on iTunes or on our website, we've been doing uh, a, near, a nearly daily podcast called Power Surge, which I hope you enjoy. It's about 15 minutes a day on up-to-date news, so hopefully that somewhat makes up for it. And then going forward, um, you know, most weeks we'll do four or five power surges plus a power hour, and um, hope hopefully that'll give you your fill. I appreciate everyone who's complained about the lack of power hour. That that tells me that there's you know we have a great audience on the show. They're passionate about it and they miss it uh, when it's gone. So we should be able to get more consistency uh, from here on. All right. That is it. So next week, we will be back with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.